Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and this is the Made It in Music Podcast, show 173. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What's up, my friends? Seth Mosley here. We're on the Made It in Music podcast today with my friend, Ben Stouffer. This is going to be a great one. Lots to learn. But before we jump in, if you have questions about the music industry or need advice, I want to let you know about a free resource that you can access right now. Now, and that is the Full Circle Music Learning Community. This is a group where you can ask music industry questions, share music industry news, and receive advice as you pursue your music career. This means you'll have an online community of over 2,000 people to learn and grow with. We also have experienced mentors in this group that'll be providing valuable content aimed at keeping you up to speed with music industry knowledge and news. So to join the Facebook group, head to fullcirclemusic.com slash group. That's fullcirclemusic.com slash group. All right. Today, we welcome music business strategist Ben Stouffer. Ben is the former CFO of data and analytics for Centricity Music Publishing and is now the creator of Counterpart Music, which provides independent musicians with record label and music publishing services. He has two decades of business experience in finance and accounting with a variety of companies, including a record label and music publishing company, a music business management firm, an S&P 500 company, and big four public accounting firms. He's also the creator of Sounds Good to Me, which is a music discovery podcast, which he produces and hosts. So glad to have Ben with us and excited to hear what wisdom he has to offer us today. How you doing, Ben? Good, Seth. Thanks for having me. Appreciate thanks for, it. Thanks for being on the uh, being on the show today. I love it. Love, love getting to learn from you and work with you a little bit in the past few months. And, and yeah. you know, even before we can jump into how we we got connected in the first place, too. But yeah. Before we do that, I want to ask you what first got you interested in the business side of the music industry? Yeah. You know, uh it's a good question. I guess just growing up being a big music fan, I just enjoyed being around it with whether it was my family playing records or my mom teaching piano lessons to to my sister and me or to other people. Um, you know, got into guitar at 15, one of those kind of things. And then, uh, yeah, once I, I got an accounting degree out of college and just kind of right away, I always felt like, hey, once I get some uh, experience under me, the big four accounting and some other industry, I'd love to see if there's a way to make this work. I know I'm not going to be on the performance side. That's just not, I don't have that skill set, <laughs> that talent, I should say, to be a professional musician. Um, and so then uh, probably, I guess it was 2008. I decided to take a little time, uh, took a short little vacation from work and went to South by Southwest, the music festival down in Austin. It's a music festival and conference. And that was kind of how I got started uh, learning really was I just went and sat in the conference panels all day. And uh, after that, I, well, then I went to the shows at night and was exhausted, but then I came back every day. And then after that, I uh, got a Billboard magazine subscription and bought the uh, Don Passman book, 
all you need to know about the music business, which is kind of a pretty famous book. If your listeners haven't, uh, haven't checked it out, that's definitely the one to start with. And, uh, yeah, so it, uh, kind of, kind of went from there. And, uh, then I ended up finding an opportunity with centricity music, which is how we met, uh, to come down to Nashville in 2010 from Pennsylvania, where I was just kind of gotten into the business through that. Mm -hmm. I want to jump, I want to, 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 to ask about what you're doing today as a music strategist. But first, uh, I love that you brought up the Donald Passman book because, yeah, that is one that we've given away. That's one we've recommended. After reading it and having been in the industry for as long as you have, are there things in it that you would disagree with or do you feel like he's kind of hit the nail on the head with how it works? Yeah, I think he's hit the nail on the head. I think one thing that makes that book so great, uh, and first everyone should know there are, a bunch of different revisions he comes up you know the first time i read it it was like hey this itunes thing seems like it might be important one day we'll get back to that you know so like that's how much how old you know that book has been but um i think i think he does a great job of keeping it light um and i think he's honest about things with like hey you know what here's about what you would expect for royalty as a superstar artist here's what you might expect at a lower but what the heck things change, things are negotiable. Just understand that. And I think, I think that's one of the things that particularly when it comes to the record contract or publishing contract side, publishing contracts tend to be a little more straightforward uh, than recording contracts, but for either one of those or for a management agreement, um, anytime people ask me about my opinions on those things, it's always a, well, it depends. It's what's your negotiating power. What's your, uh, need you know how much are you willing to give up in order to have a deal that gives you a, a additional benefit so um i think he's good at that and i think that's one of the things that maybe just reading the book with that eye is important to know that hey here's a rough idea but when it comes down to it things are different and um i'll be interested to see you know we'll talk a little bit about what i do but i'll be interested to see how much he gets into some of the DIY and um, sort of label services stuff in his next revision, if he does another one. Yeah. So do you, do you pick up the new revision every year? I don't, I, I have, uh, I have the latest still. I mean, I have the latest. Um, I'm not sure that when he's putting out a new one, but I, uh, I kind of waited a while just cause I got into the business. So I was able to educate myself through a lot of different resources and and just on the job that uh, yeah, you're learning that I didn't necessarily need the update. But yeah, I got copies for my staff people when I was working in finance at Centricity. I'd get them copies, so I'd get myself the new one and um, and uh, just kind of go back through the the uh, areas that I figure probably changed the most since yeah. <laughs> since last time. So you're known as a music strategist. Yeah. What is a music strategist and how does someone get into music business strategy? Yeah, good question. So uh, what I would say makes me a strategist is knowing how the revenues flow. So this is particularly on the recording side. Uh, when you're working with an artist to put a project out, the primary focus you're going to have is going to be on the record side versus the publishing side. That's a whole other discussion I'm sure you've had on different podcasts and we can talk to, uh, more about. But um, And so uh, when it comes to the record side, it comes to having, uh, having experience in knowing 
what the best practices are when it comes to one, uh, how to properly schedule, meaning sort of your timeline, um, your mechanisms or your, or your way for putting music out, how to schedule your releases, uh, what content you want to provide that's in addition to a particular song or recording or a master, we call it, uh, in addition to the cover art that comes with a digital release. Uh, the things that would come in, in addition to that are video content primarily, but other social content. So being able to look at best practices, like I said, and say, okay, um, what are other people doing that works well? What are the things that are dictated by a Spotify or an Apple or a uh, YouTube um, that make it preferable for you to release content in certain ways at certain times? Um, what is the kind of content, if it's talking about video or remixes, that you are able to release at a certain time? And who are the people you might be targeting with different content? Um, there's some content you want to release that will keep your current fan base engaged. There's some you release, which, especially as you're growing, the bigger things like new recordings, you want to not only engage people who have engaged with you before, but also to try to get brand new uh, fans. And that's where advertising, promotion, all of those things come with new content um, during a release, a release schedule. So really what, what makes it strategy, I guess, is knowing what you need to do to differentiate yourself. This is kind of an, uh, I'm an, I have an MBA, a degree in, you know, in business. So this is kind of the, the MBA version is what differentiates your, you from other people when there's so much noise, so much, any kind of media content out there. Um, and that could even come down to, you know, certain seasons where you shouldn't release music or you should based on based on what's going on in the world or what kind of music uh, you're releasing. Yeah. That's well, well said. Um, what, you know, having, having been at centricity, what was your, like, what all did your role entail there? Cause I know when, when I met you, you know, you were, you were definitely on the finance side, but then you kind of yep. moved into more of the data and analytics. What, what all did your role entail when you were working at Centricity? Yeah. So I, I ran finance. I kind of started the internal finance department, accounting and finance, because um, we were using some outside help to do accounting before I got in. We started to grow a lot, actually, right about the same time they hired me. So, um, so I ran the accounting and finance world, which included a lot of royalties um, the primary, the, the basic thing that I took from that, that I can apply today is really the understanding of where all the different money comes from, whether it's sound exchange, satellite radio, Pandora, how those things work, as well as all the other, um, revenue sources. You know, when I started there, they had almost no streaming income. It was all CD sales and downloads, um, particularly downloads of albums for, for a while anyway. Uh, and then that, of course, completely shifted by the time I left uh, in uh, 2020. So um, that, was, that was where that part came from. And then I shifted to doing a couple of other things. One, I continued to oversee the finance department. We grew out the staff and I took on a data analytics role, which was looking at what playlisting we're getting uh, using some tools that are out there that I can recommend uh, to 
to follow what uh, playlists we're getting, how songs are doing, uh, typically what kind of streams a track is getting week to week, week in, week out, what sources we're seeing. Oh, we saw a pickup in Pandora this week. What's that about? We should look to see if there's an opportunity there. Um, that kind of thing. Also, a little to a lesser extent, looking at the social media campaigns or uh, initiatives our digital marketing team was running and helping out with trying to see how we could improve or, or what we could learn. Um, and the other thing that I picked up that I apply a lot is that I was taking on the role of helping to uh, manage the what we called the production schedule, which was basically a look at when we wanted to put the different tracks or albums out for each of our artists and what that meant in terms of content delivery from A&R getting the masters from the production team to the creatives getting the cover art and social media skins and, and administrative, uh, you know, getting requesting mechanical licenses, all of that stuff, just sort of helping to manage that whole schedule. And that really helped to give me an idea of, uh, ways that an independent can also manage those, those things. So that's one of the things that I do for my artists. Yeah. Were there any good tools that you used for managing that? Cause I know it's one thing if you're one artist and you're kind of managing your own thing, or maybe you're a manager that has two or three people, but if you're a label that has, you know, 10 or 12 artists, yeah. there are a finite amount of slots. And then when you move <laughs> one slot, it, it affects other things. Sure. Uh, sure. Every what other we, deliverable. Yeah. So how, how did you manage that? Were there any yeah. tools that were helpful for that? Yeah, it can, it can be a challenge. One of the reasons, honestly, that I was the person who did it was because, uh, I set up an Excel workbook, um, which may sound a little, not, not exactly like the best way to do it, but like you did say, we had around a dozen artists or so at a time. Um, and for a much larger label, that would not be uh, probably the, the most suitable way to do it. But what we would do is the, the key was that we had both a schedule for uh, like a, a work tab uh, in Excel for each of those projects, each of the artists' EP releases, you know? And so that one tab would include single releases, video releases, the next single, and then the EP, for example. Um, and then we had a summary that put all of our releases across the company together. And so that if we said, oh, artist A's uh, single's gonna have to bump at least a week for a certain reason, I could update the schedule. It would update the summary. And then we could see if there was going to be a conflict with other artists, whether it was um, on our creative people's time to be able to, you know, shoot, create a video or to do a cover art or whether it was just, Hey, where you have too many things going in the system at the same time to be able to connect with the digital um, service providers like Spotify is going to be heavy, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was, that's kind of a crude way to do it, but that was, that was the way we did it. And honestly, it worked having a meeting every, we had a meeting every Monday. So having that meeting and then also making that document, um, available by, by the cloud to everybody help to manage that. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that, that it's, it's a behind the scenes role, but it's more important than most people realize that, you know, you're managing the schedules of those releases for Lauren Daigle and for unspoken and for, uh, you know, Jason Gray and Jordan Feliz and so many artists. So it's, it really does take a lot of organization. It, um, yeah, it did. It was a lot of coordinating, you know, we, that 
the production meeting was theoretically only the people who needed to be there, but it was most of the company anyway, because so many people, uh, you know, needed to be aware of things. Um, and so, yeah, it was good. I mean, a lot of, uh, we had for the, the last year I was doing that, we had a person whose job was more on the coordinating. Okay. Now we come out of that meeting. Now I'll coordinate with the managers or with other people kind of across, or to the extent that we made some decisions were made during the week, he would update me and we would you know, update that in the, in the meeting uh, on Monday. So, um, it definitely takes, uh, uh, takes an effort. Um, you know, when I got there, it was being done, but it was such a smaller scale because you weren't putting out so many singles. That's the thing is so many releases necessitate a real focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to strategy and execution of independent releases, what are some great ideas that you've discovered for digital marketing campaigns or just marketing in general? Yeah. So marketing, I, I, I do want to say that sort of I've transitioned what we were just talking about with this production schedule over to sort of an indie release version. I tend to do it in PowerPoint just to make it look kind of more like a calendar going across the page. And that's where starting with that, I think laying out your release strategy, which includes video, as I mentioned, uh, whether it's a lyric video, official video, just a static audio art art clip, um, is really important to first. It's really important to first set that up in an appropriate schedule to be able to get to marketing effectively. So, what I would say, for example, is you know if I've got an artist, um, we put a single out, and we've got a video planned for a little bit later. They're kind of you know, maybe, maybe it's a little bit of a slow go on the audio, on the audio side. Um, we want to make sure we've got our plan in place to start marketing the video as a different outlet. Um, more broadly speaking, what I've really been focused on, um, from a marketing perspective are, you really need to be active on socials. I'm not, I'm not really saying anything that I'm sure has you know, that I'm sure has been said on this podcast before anyone you read or talk to about, you need to be active on socials. Um, if it's not something where you want to be, maybe you don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, maybe there's a reason particularly, maybe you just don't have the confidence. Um, one, I would suggest, you know, to be a, a musician promoting yourself is really important. And so you need to find a way to share content um, even if it's not about your music, to share some insight into your life is important for people. People don't follow you on Instagram to be peppered with ads about your next song. So you need to be able to do both, uh, have both a, a, a balance, have a balance of both personal content in some way and music content. One thing that we do uh, with one of my clients is we kind of outpost stuff that's like, Hey, check out the new single or, Hey, have you seen the video yet? And we'll put lower like a team artist name on it. So it's like, Hey, you know, I'm not trying to get you to, 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 uh, necessarily be in on this from a promotional standpoint. I'm more about sharing myself, but my team needs to make sure you know that my new singles out or whatever. Um, that can be a thing that we do. Um, uh, so that's, that's really important. And what I try to do, um, for those who aren't super into it, or maybe just feel like they aren't very good at it is to come up with two posts a week, 
which is really not enough. But um, if we can do two posts a week on Instagram and Facebook, then that's at least something that is hopefully more than what you were doing uh, before we started working together. On the second side is is the more more vital from where I come in, because that part is really just advice that I've kind of just given on this podcast. And that's where the digital marketing paid promotion comes in. Um, what I've really been working on and focusing on um, are the tools that Facebook slash Instagram provide for ads manager. Um, for those who don't know, you can run paid advertising on both Facebook uh, and Instagram, Instagram stories and feed and Facebook, all sorts of different places, but the feed and the stories being the main two. Um, and uh, also, I've been getting more into YouTube advertising when someone has a compelling official video. Uh, a couple of things, basically what the typically on Instagram and Facebook, what I've been focused on doing is trying to generate Spotify followers. And so what you do is you basically give someone, in my case, what I do is I run an Instagram stories ad. And I don't know if everybody else has in the last year or so, but I've just been getting peppered like every other Instagram stories post is an ad for me. That's probably because I follow a lot of musicians, but, um, and that's basically like, it's just a compelling Instagram 15 second or less clip, hopefully that gets people to swipe up because as long as you pay for it, you don't have to have 10,000 followers for a swipe up link. Uh, that's the, the cutoff on Instagram. So if you pay for it, it gets them to swipe up and they go straight to your profile. Oh, that was kind of neat. Okay. I'll follow them and check out the latest song or the song they have as their artist pick, which makes the artist pick pretty important. Um, that video, that, that ad should be video. Uh, I see way too many, quite honestly, that are just static pictures and they're just not going to be as effective. Uh, if I don't know who you are, I'm not going to check out your music just because you've asked me to, but you didn't give me a 15 second clip. Um, have confidence that, you know, the people who hear it, that you're targeting will, will want to, want to check it out. Um, and then the second thing I mentioned was, uh, was on YouTube. We've been running ads, uh, for a client or two of mine, uh, to drive YouTube subscribers. Uh, and that's when you basically put in, in what we're doing, at least right now, is you put a pre-roll, what's called a pre-roll add on, uh, if you've been on YouTube and you've been to a channel that's has ads, you'll get the thing that you can sometimes click away after five seconds, or if they paid a lot more, it's, you have to watch the whole 30 second clip or something like that. And that's what those are. So you can basically target keywords or different channels to get people to check out your video. Um, and if they watch for 30 seconds or more, it actually counts as a view. Plus you've got the ability to engage them to click through. And, and so far for some of the ones I've been running, we've been seeing a lot of benefits of both the Spotify follower growth and the YouTube campaign. So you've got, so you've got Facebook and Instagram ads, you've got YouTube ads. T tell us a little bit about Spotify ads. Yeah. And when I say, when we talk about Spotify ads, what I'm specifically talking about is those ones that you run on either Instagram or Facebook. Uh, there's a thing called Spotify marquee um, the, that where you can, you can advertise directly on Spotify so that people who primarily who use the ad supported thing will see, Hey, check out my new song or brands can advertise on there. It initially, that initially started out as very expensive. They've 
pared the pricing back, but I, I quite honestly have not seen a lot of success from the, the case studies I've read. So I don't recommend for most people to use Spotify marquee at this point. Um, but what we are talking about is basically what you do uh, is you can target. Uh, I recommend starting at least if you are on the kind of the lower end of Spotify followers, you know, well under a couple of thousand, let's say that you target the globe. Um, so you just kind of do a worldwide ad. The United States is the most expensive ad market in the world. And so if you target the more expensive ones, you're going to get the ad shown to fewer people. And so I recommend targeting the world, start to grow that follower. Um, basically what you do in that ads universe is you target the um, target like interests for the most part. So if you want, and, and it's available to you, you could target people who shop at Whole Foods if you wanted, because you felt like that was your audience. That's going to be a pretty broad audience though. And so at the very least, if you targeted Whole Foods, I would say maybe make Whole Foods like they have to shop at Whole Foods, but I'm mostly targeting people who listen to music who would also like my music. Um, you know, so you, if you have a, an alternative guitar rock band, you're going to want to be targeting people who would listen to similar music and say, oh, I really like this clip. I want to check it out. But how did they know that I might want that? You know, that you don't know that someone's targeting you. And I'm always thinking, sometimes I see some that don't feel like they apply to me. So I wonder what artist I follow they, they were targeting. But uh, that's, that's something to be honest about. Uh, just be honest with yourself that not everybody should be targeting the superstar artists is also going to be less effective and more expensive to try to target superstars, but you can, you can mix it up. So, um, you know, I, a lot of places, I'm going to give a little bit of a shout out to tone den who has, uh, a, a person here, but they've got, um, I think they're based in California at this point, but they are a, a profile or a, a platform for helping to run Spotify follower growth ads and various other ads, um, more effectively. Um, and basically they help you to set things up a little more easily with geography and just kind of making sure things work a little more cleanly than it might in the Facebook ads manager. Um, if you're starting on a lower budget now, and is, is, is yep. toned in, is toned yep. in Spotify specific? No toned in, you can run ads for anything. You could run an ad for the independent mom and pop grocery store chain you own if you wanted to. Um, they just have a specific setup right now that is very useful for Spotify following and YouTube subscribers. Um, but you can use it for creating, you can also use it for creating landing pages for people who have music landing pages or smart links. So you directly link, you can track a lot of analytics that way. Um, I check them out. It's toneden.io. Uh, and you know, the pricing varies. It's kind of a monthly fee to have have a, a platform to use the platform. Um, but it, in any event, um, yeah. So what you want to do is target interests. Most of the time for us, it's going to be targeting artists who make sense um, in your genre, but you want to kind of run the gamut of higher level, higher activity artists to medium followings and, and, and people who are bigger than you, but not necessarily all the superstars, because everyone's going to try to target Ed Sheeran if they are an acoustic guitar guy, you know? And so you want to try to find right. something a little different to make it easier. 
Um, those, those ad worlds, both YouTube and Facebook and Instagram are what's typically what's called auction based. And so you are competing against other people in a bid to get space on my Instagram story with anyone else who's competing with those similar artists. So uh, that's one thing that I help people do is just kind of walk through, well, what artists make sense? Like sonically, let's work on it. Luckily, I do have a, a, like a pretty good background in listening to music. You mentioned my, my podcast. Um, and so I sit and work with the artist to say, well, who makes sense? Who makes the most sense um, to target? And then you can tweak things if they don't seem to work. Sure. I love that. So for, you know, for those indie artists on a budget, are there any other programs, tools, or resources that you would recommend for launching a release aside from, you know, Facebook, YouTube, toned in? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. I mean, one, I, I think people are probably aware of the, the main digital distributors like DistroKid, CD Baby, TuneCore, um, Ditto Music is another one I use. You can check them out. Um, just, Check those out for more if you if you haven't gotten into releasing on your own yet. Uh, the the main thing I would say if you are um, if you haven't released any music, uh, make sure you get a YouTube make sure you get a YouTube channel uh, with a G, with a Google account. You don't even have to use a Gmail account. You can just sign up a Google for a Google account with any email address. Create a YouTube channel. Uh, you know, put your name on it and your band name, your artist name. And um, the second thing, I guess, would be make sure you start collecting all your socials if you haven't released any music yet. You know, so that's one thing I do. I've got some brand new artists. And one of the things is I came up with a, I sent them a checklist. Okay, got to grab, let's first get an email address. Let's, why don't we just get a Gmail address that uses the artist name? That way we can kind of access it as a team, grab Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube channel, um, grab uh, an iCloud, a Pandora, because we're going to use those for analytics later. That's a lot of what I do is kind of working through once we've got music out or before we do helping people get their Spotify account verified before you release music or getting an Apple analytics after uh, things like that. Um, I would recommend Chartmetric. There's a, a site, chartmetric.com. And that is, so far, I think the best uh, use for streaming and social analytics that is either free or relatively inexpensive. In this case, they have a free version. And you can look up any artist because they're on the Spotify API, so they can pull information from the back end on anybody, uh, not just you. And you can um, see a limited amount of information for, for artists on the free version. So you can see what Spotify playlists are in their database that you or someone else is on, which can be helpful if you're trying to look for similar artists. For example, for targeting, maybe you have a few artists, but you're like, ah, I don't know who else I should target. You can go look at some playlists those couple of artists are on and find other find other artists on that playlist. Oh yeah, that feels like that could be my sign, Let, my, my sound, let's target them. Uh, for me, I use it, I use the paid version mostly because I like to be able to track a lot of things that you don't get for free, but it still helps. It's still very helpful to be able to look at uh, socials and, and streaming playlists in particular. Um, 
always going to promote the, you know, the Spotify for artists, Apple for artists, Amazon music for artists. A lot of people probably haven't gotten into yet, but that's important. YouTube analytics and Pandora's amp are kind of the big analytics ones I would recommend outside of that. Deezer also has one. If you have a little more of a foreign following, um, might be, might be worth trying to get into. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about you were working at Centricity, you were developing the finance team, you had had the data and analytics and the production schedule running. What inspired you to go off and start your own business? Yeah, yeah, good question. You know, I was at Centricity for about seven years. Uh, and in the probably last year or so that I was there, uh, I started to meet by chance, by connection, a lot of different independent artists who had some of these questions that I'm either I've been answering on this podcast or, or that I'm kind of trying to answer with the services I provide. And, uh, I was helping some out just for free, like, Hey, here's some strategic ideas to, to think about as you're releasing this album or, Hey, let me help you get a look at Pandora. So you can try to see if you can run an amp feature. Um, and, as I started seeing over that last year or so, more and more of those cases, whether it was friends or people being introduced to me, I thought, you know, there isn't, for a lot of these folks, there's isn't a place for them in the traditional label world for a couple of reasons. One, they're starting out and they haven't gotten the awareness yet that it takes for a label to be able to invest the time and money. Um, two, a lot of people aren't interested in that. There's there can be, I think, mostly wrongly um, negative views of of the big bad record label. Uh, but a lot of people want to just be independent, retain ownership of their recordings, which is the one of the big things. Um, and and also may just not be at that step where they need to give up either ownership of the recordings or a share of the royalties uh, in exchange for a much bigger push. My my business of counterpart really is intended for an artist who I see as having a really great potential, isn't quite in the place where they've got the attention of uh, even kind of like the mid level labels, or they haven't quite built the fan base up enough to warrant it. Um, And they uh, are looking for some help. So, you know, there's a, there's a real trend uh, the the other part, I guess, I would say is there's been a trend that you can find anywhere in the news, music news, of the share of uh, revenue, record revenue, or streaming across the globe, very much uh, uh, veering more toward people doing it independently. Now that includes that would include people using things like AWOL, which is the independent artist services company under um, under Cobalt. Uh, where they will give you a pretty hefty investment in your career. You still own your masters. It's kind of what they would traditionally call label services deal. But at the same time, you are still in ownership of your masters. You're retaining most of your creative control, if not all. Um, That's been a real trend. And so I kind of saw that coming a while ago too. And that's sort of the other reason that I felt like it was a a need and a way that I could try try to help. I love it. So tell us a little bit more about Counterpart and kind of what you're doing day to day as a company. You've touched a little bit about it, but 
for people that may be interested in in researching more or connecting with you what what is it that you do every day to work and help develop those new artists yeah sure yeah well i do have i think three rosters three artists on the roster who had not put out any music before i started working with them and so uh those are those I tend to spend a little bit of time up front doing all that. Let's check the boxes and on getting all your socials and things set up. Uh, I give them a checklist of, okay, here's what we need from a creative perspective. We need a YouTube banner. We need a profile pick, but we also want to have some interesting content imagery for launching you on your socials and getting people, people aware. Um, and then uh, for them and for anyone else who's, who's already had some music out, the primary things that I do are I create uh, a release grid. Uh, well, kind of the first thing that I do when I get into an artist, and it really is a project by project basis, so it depends on where I am in an artist's project cycle um, as far as what I do in a certain week. But I do what I call digital audit, where I go through and say, okay, so you're an artist who's already been set up. You've got some socials. I'm going to give you some thoughts on some things we could improve or things that are seem to be working well that are some strengths we should take an opportunity to, to use for, your, for the release we're going to work on. Um, you know, you really want to both uh, fix anything that might be a, a weakness and also utilize what you already have as an asset. You don't want to just look at it fixing the, the problem, so to speak. Um, and then once I've done the audit, we kind of get together and, and we'll adjust some things, uh, but also keep that in mind for setting up the release plan. And then that's the next thing I do as I set up this PowerPoint release plan to the extent that people need some help in terms of, okay, well, I know that's when we want to put it out, but when do you want me to turn all this stuff in? I can kind of give them a turn in due date schedule too. Um, Man, that's, that. that's so huge. Like that's huge for artists is half the time, you know, artists just don't know how long of a runway they need to properly market and set a record up mm. for success. And most of the time they give themselves way too little time yes. um, because it takes well, time to get your music pitched and, and, and all of that stuff. It does. And that's probably good. This is probably a good time to talk about that. <laughs> there's so many answers to this question that uh, I'll give you, I'll give you my view. And it's one that's relatively consistent. Like I've, I've seen others agree, kind of take the same approach. Um, you know, I, I like to have a record, have a single or whatever the release is in house to be put up through, let's say a distro kid or a ditto music five weeks, if not six, uh, before the, the street date, the release date. Um, one that does give us a chance if we realize something was screwed up, you know, every once in a while I've had someone not on my clients, but you know, people who like, Hey, that wasn't the final mix. Oops. You know, things like that. Um, and that gives you a little bit of time just to try to, to breathe and, and get that set up. But you also want to make sure that you've had time to get things put through the system. Um, Spotify often will turn things around in a day, but you want to make sure that gives you the opportunity Apple Music, for example, if you wanted to try to pitch to an editor, um, that's not always going to be the, the case. But if you wanted to, they really need to have the music in their system, like in the editor's hands three weeks, if not more, before. So you're already talking about cutting it close, even at four weeks if and five. Um, 
you know, honestly, the other thing, the other part of that is so, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a five to six week guy, but I'll work with, work with other things. Um, the other thing I guess I would say is it also gives you the time to set up a schedule for messaging your audience, uh, particularly if let's say it's the first single from a new project. Um, you want to be able to have a time where you switch out your socials and that's the day maybe that you tell everybody you've got a new project coming and it's going to be out on whatever day. And then throughout the next maybe week and a half or two weeks, you have a pre-save link that you can share with them and you message them with, let's say, clips, uh, let's say the, the single cover, and then you have a little clip of the chorus and a clip of a verse and a clip of the bridge and trying to get their intent, uh, attention. Because even your best friends won't pre-save it the first time they see it sometimes. you know, A lot of people won't pre-save at all, but you want to at least try to get the message out so that they don't have to be sitting there on the day you released it to find out that it was coming. You know, if, if I see it a couple of weeks ahead, I might be like, oh, okay, I'll have to remember that. And then when it comes, it's maybe I've pre-saved it or at least now I'm looking, oh yeah, okay, I remember so-and-so telling me about that coming out. Um, that, that pre-release, you know, doesn't really need to be more than two weeks or that pre-messaging, but that's where getting it in five or six weeks help you to, helps you to, to set that up. Um, the other thing is that I like to start running Spotify follower growth ads on the day of the release. And so I want to have some sort of a clip, uh, hopefully a visual with the artist in it, lip syncing or something. But if not, I want to at least have the artwork and the, a piece of the single clipped, uh, uh, synced to the clip as a clip. And so that requires having everything, you know, before. So, yeah, well that man, that's some great nuggets right there for people who are listening. Oh. Um, you have a presentation that you give to artists called the business of music, mm -hmm. which is all about revenue streams for both recording and publishing copyrights. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I actually started doing that at centricity when we would have these, uh, every other year we'd have these retreats for independent artists, uh, that we were, you know, we were interested in, in maybe working with in the future. And when I came on, they said, Hey, you know what? Probably could be good to have one for business. So, I basically uh, set something up and, and ran it with my staff that basically walked everybody through as much as we could in an hour, um, walked people through the primary ways that the money flows for records and songwriting copyrights. Uh, really starting with the, hey, make sure you know that there's a sound recording copyright and a song writing, we'll say, song writing or publishing copyright. And then we kind of diverge from there. And so it goes through in a lot of detail, but I try to try to make sure that I just give the overview and let people have a chance for questions. Um, but I, I also did this, uh, gave this uh, a little bit last year to some folks who were interested in learning about it. Uh, and every time I've done it, it's been, had to be updated, you know, within the two years because something changed. Um, and so it, yeah, it really follows the flow of how, okay, well, I don't really understand what sound, sound exchange. Isn't that like a PRO? Okay. What's a PRO? Like people can kind of get an understanding of the basics of what all of the different places, uh, songwriting money flows through how record royalties flow. And then of course you've got both of them 
coming from, let's say, uh, an Apple Music has to pay both. Well, they don't pay them to the same place. They pay them in different ways. So um, that kind of split, people understanding. Uh, and I'll be honest, there are a lot of professionals in the business who still don't entirely understand how songwriting streaming royalties work, for example. Uh, and so that just gives a little bit of a basic understanding. Uh, probably the best thing that comes out of that usually is people say, oh, I should sign up for that. Or, oh, yeah, I better go back and look at that. I think I signed up for that, but I probably didn't submit my works. You know? Yeah. Well, ma man, can you give us just a few of the of the of those biggest nuggets of like what what are those things yeah. that people aren't signed up for that they should yeah. be signed up for? Sure. Well, the first is sound exchange. And I would just search for uh, register sound exchange, one word. And what that is, is it's I kind of call it a quasi governmental entity that is responsible for collecting the uh, performance, master performance royalties for digital streams. Now, what that means is that is for what you would call non-interactive or your radio type. And so that is from a, from a bulk of it, it's going to be your Pandora and your Sirius XM because those two places have radio type services where I don't choose exactly what I listen to. Uh, I have a station, you know, um, and they pay those to sound exchange for people who don't have direct deals, which is most people. And then anytime, like if your state, if your song were played on a terrestrial or a, or a commercial FM radio station, but then they also have an online station, they would pay royalties or should pay royalties on those streams from online. Um, in the United States, you don't get recording royalties from commercial FM AM radio play, but sure. on the digital side, you do. The second would be, um, if you don't have a PRO yet, but you're a songwriter and you're getting a decent batch of songs, especially if you're gonna be releasing them soon or have already released, sign up for ASCAP or BMI. Uh, those are the performance rights organizations that will accept anybody. Uh, there are some others that are more of an invite only and they're for-profit PROs. Uh, ASCAP and BMI are the PROs who are essentially not-for-profit and take anybody. Um, there's a fee, so I, I don't uh, necessarily say everybody should go do it right away. But if you've got a batch of songs that you're going to be commercially exploiting, as they say, i.e. they'll be earning money in some way, I would go ahead and spend the 100 or $150 to sign up as both a songwriter and a publisher. Uh, because you are your own publisher if you don't have a signed agreement with a, another one. The third thing that is the new one that I added to the had to add to the the um, presentation this year is the Mechanical Licensing Collective, which we know a lot about here in Nashville because they they're based here now, uh, and they are a new group who uh, was under the uh, some of the copyright reform of a couple years ago was formed to license and collect mechanical royalties for the digital services providers. So previously, it was a little bit haphazard. Most of it was being done by Harry Fox Agency on, on the licensing side, but you had to be a publisher to sign up with Harry Fox. Now, and any songwriter or publisher and publisher should sign up with the MLC, uh, just search for the Mechanical Licensing Collective, and uh, they started actually process, uh, collecting processing effective January 1st of, of this year, 2021. And so now is the time to start signing up. 
um, because what they will be doing is basically collecting and paying to you as long as you've given them the, your catalog, the songwriting copyrights that you have on anything that has streamed on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Pandora, uh, not Pandora, Amazon, um, yeah, Deezer, those sorts of things. Um, and the other thing I would say about that is they will also be paying back royalties because what was happening was these people who couldn't sign up with Harry Fox because they weren't a publisher didn't get paid any of these royalties. Most people probably are hearing this right now and not realizing that these royalties are out there just based on my survey of people. Um, and so there are back royalties sitting at Harry Fox that they are going to be paying to the MLC so that the MLC will then pay out to people who weren't registered with Harry Fox yet, or if the song wasn't matched for some reason to someone who was. Yeah. And so if you have written your own songs or you've written songs for others and they've generated streaming royalties from the majors, from Spotify, YouTube, et cetera, you very likely have not been paid if you don't have a publisher, uh, but they will be going um, here and starting to do payment of those unpaid but collected royalties and there are people, if you put music out for a number of years, you may have at least a decent check. Signing up for the MLC is free, so you don't have to pay anything. Uh, what you need to do is sign up, and then you need to, you or someone who works with you needs to submit your catalog, which is very similar to the process of submitting your works to an ASCAP or BMI. It's, it, it's, they've made it as very simple, uh, as simple as they can. Uh, a lot of good webinars and things they've been doing at the MLC. Those, those folks are, are on top of it all. So. Those yeah. are kind of the, those are the, the sign up places. Sure. Sure. I love that. And people can find out the info about the MLC at the MLC.com. Yep. Um, thank you for, for making sure people are aware of that. Um, sure. and, and you, you hit on something that I, I was going to ask it a little later, but it kind of makes sense to ask it now, but are there times when giving up publishing as a songwriter is a good idea? Like if so, when would you recommend yes. giving up publishing and actually signing with a music publisher? Absolutely. And one of the things, one of probably the second slide in my indie presentation is that publishing royalties are automatically, or publishing ownership is automatically split half between a writer and half to the publisher. So if you sign a full publishing deal with someone, you're still keeping half of the money. You're keeping the writer half. Um, now there's, depending on what kind of revenue, money you have advanced on royalties and stuff, you may not get a payment for a while, but you're getting that advance in, in exchange. Um, so that's the first thing I always like to say is you're not actually even giving up the whole thing unless uh, you would sell some big catalog and you sell your writer's share at the end, um, like we've seen in some of the, the transactions lately. Um, so that's that's important. So basically the question is, well, should we be giving up, should I be giving up half of what I have in exchange for something, and when should I do that? And you know, if I, I'm an analytic guy, I'm a math guy, so you could say, well, if you could double it, double what you have now, then giving up half of it would put you right back at square one, basically. So you would want someone to at least double it. And and when you're talking about going from an independent songwriter to being a signed songwriter, doubling it isn't even the question it's about many multiples of times of growing what you have. Cause you can well, imagine and, and, and most of the time it's, you can't double zero. 
Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> They're starting like, hey, out. Hey, <laughs> my, my PR check was $1.30 last year or something. It's like, yeah. okay, that's basically zero, right? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, my, my real recommend, basic recommendation there is that if you have a good, have a good music business attorney explaining to you the offer that's on the, the offers or offer that's available, they will help you to best make sure that you have a deal that is good for you. Um, you know, I have a client who I helped to get a co-publishing deal. Um, we talked with the, I set her up with an attorney. Um, you know, there was some hesitancy mostly just because of not understanding what a publisher does um, when you haven't worked with one. <laughs> um, but what, a, but what we ultimately did was, you know, this was a situation where the opportunity for um, being put in, co-writes with with people you weren't going to get in a room with on your own the opportunity for film and tv sync licensing that you would never get you know they say hey let's bring you in for a day to write for this for this song or maybe we just put your voice on it and you write a couple of lines you would never have that without someone giving you a shot yeah. um just the you know pitching to artists has become less of a thing outside of from for the most part country um these days, but there is always opportunity, particularly on pop for you to, you know, get a song that someone else decides to cut. And there's just a lot of, I mean, there's just a lot of opportunity for them to grow what's basically zero into something that can be very fruitful. Um, and a lot of that is those connections that you get a network of people who now know that, oh, okay, you are on this publisher's roster. Um, now I'm going to, I, I can take you seriously. And um, and help you out. And, you know, I, it, my, my best recommendation besides the attorney thing is if it doesn't feel right to you, make sure you ask the right questions about, okay, so what is this I'm getting in return? Um, you know, I guess the other, to get into the weeds, the other thing is I mentioned my one artist as a, my one client as a co-publishing deal. So off the bat, she actually retained some of the publishing share anyway. Um, that's not going to be common. That was just the particulars of this deal. And the other thing it related to that would be um, many deals will at least negotiate that if you get to a very high level of earn in of earnings, um, you know, it doesn't have to be some, the number's not necessarily crazy, but it's well, and it well exceeds where you are now that you will actually have a chance to earn some co-publishing going forward. If you were going to sign, let's say uh, another option with that with that publisher. So, you know, that, that initial deal gives you a lot of benefit to be able to get, um, all of those values, the, the value I just kind of laid out there. And then, um, if you've got a little bit of, of wiggle room, you can negotiate something else down the road. Yeah, no, that's, that's well said. And I, and I do want to hit on something because I know people have probably gone online or read different books and, 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 you hear about this whole stigma attached to keep all your publishing. Don't give away your yeah. publishing. Yeah. Um, or, you know, for that matter, what you just talked about co-pub deals. Yeah. I've heard so many artists who are literally just at square one who come in and say, man, I'm not going to do it unless I get a co-pub deal, which means not, yeah. you know, not giving up that hopeful 100% of the publishing side. And, and really that's yep. something you earn. That's something yep. you earn the right yeah. to have over time, whether through, yep. Well, it's always through success, through through success of your song. So just yeah. to say that again, if you're an artist and writer who's starting out at the very beginning, 
unless you have multiple publishers and labels bidding against each other to get you, which likely is not the case in 99% of all cases, then you're going to get a standard 100% publishing deal. And, and really, I, I talk about this a lot. I just talked about it in a video that I just posted on why why would you give that away? And well, from from a from a publishing standpoint, you have to you have to look at it from their from their shoes of like why would they want to give you a slot that they could give to another writer? It's mm -hmm. slots are very finite in the time of day and them sharing their relationships with you. They know it's going to take years, largely years, if you don't have existing catalog to to make anything at all on it. Yep, and so. So it's, it really comes down to risk. Yeah, just, like, that, just like a bank loaning, loaning money, the interest rate that you will repay them is directly proportional to the risk that they perceive they have. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the slot of, hey, we only have enough a bit manpower to manage so many writers. And you know, almost invariably, they're going to have some advance that they're going to give you. So they're actually giving you cash uh, either over time like a monthly payment or upfront that they are actually taken out of their company pocket to give to you as an advance on future royalties. And so they, they need to see that. I should say the, the client I mentioned who got a co-pub that kind of speaks to what I was talking about with the Passman book, where not all deals are created equal. And so there was a risk, a bit of a risk share that, Hey, in exchange for co-pub, there was some other parameters of this deal that, were more favorable, you know, to the, to the publisher. So we kind of, that's where the negotiation stuff comes in. But yeah, I think that's really important. And the, I'd rather have, you know, half of a big number than all of zero, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just thinking bigger. Yeah. Um, as we're kind of wrapping up, I've got a few more questions and this is something that we talk about a lot. And I know that you, you share, uh, this perspective as well. It's important for artists to also learn to think like entrepreneurs. So what are some ways an artist can do that? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, uh, the first thing I think is when I think of an entrepreneur, the, the, the very first thing I think is someone who is very self-motivated and realizes, recognizes that um, like with me, with Counterpart, with you, with Full Circle, and many of your your endeavors, you realize that it's not going to happen without you. You are not. You don't go into an office and uh, punch the clock and and everything. If you didn't show up one day, it would be fine, or they would replace you. This is your baby. And so, first of all, to think like an entrepreneur, um, be self motivated, realizing that hey, you know what, you need help from people like us to advance your career, but it's got to start with you. Um, whether it's like I talked about with social being active in social posting, you may not like it. Let's come up with a way that you can do it. That makes sense. Whether it is, um, putting in the extra effort to get that chorus just right. You know, maybe it didn't pop quite right. When someone, when you listen to it a few times, go back and, and get that, right from a, uh, either a songwriting or a production standpoint, if your producer's, you know, flexible. Um, the other thing that is important for my clients as well is for better or worse, you need to have a monetary investment in yourself as well as a, as a, an independent musician. It unfortunately is not the case that, um, 
being a musician, an independent musician is a job where someone just pays you to do it until you've reached a certain level. There isn't an, oh, well, this is entry level and we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. You've got to be doing this yourself, but you've also, in order to get some awareness, you've either got to invest uh, some money in yourself or you've got to have a benefactor who is investing in you. Um, that's something that now I didn't start that way, but now I require all my clients to have some minimum budget for marketing because I know that we can get the single out and it'll just, it, it won't go anywhere if we don't have any way to release it to people beyond the normal audience. Can you, can you speak uh, to that a little bit? Sure. I know it varies yeah. with everybody, but what, what yeah. is a minimum budget nowadays, yeah. in your opinion? Th this is, this is just for me. Like if you, if you, this is not the answer to what does it take to break an artist? This is what does it take to make, take a, a, a release and have successful growth that enables you to, to move to the next step. Um, because the break in artist is a much bigger number. And the number that I've been sticking with for release is to have a $2,000 digital marketing budget. Um, and I should also mention my, my work is mostly fixed fee based. I charge a commission, like a commission basically on, on ads that I run, but for all of the setup and things I do is fixed fee. So that's a kind of separate negotiated thing. But I recommend 2000 because that gets you basically a year's worth of promotion at $5 a day and then some. So that gives us the ability the, to run Spotify or YouTube ads at $5 a day. And then if something starts popping, we add a little more to it. Or if we have some $200 opportunity that comes up for some other kind of ad or, you know, a banner ad on a site or something like that, a blog is willing to do. Um, that gives us a little, little bit of cushion. Um, it, you know, that 2000 guarantees nothing. I will, I will tell you, I have some, I have a very, a vast so far, a vast difference in success in terms of Spotify follower growth from one to the next one on a per, per penny or a cost per click cost per follower basis. Um, and, that's really some of that, you know, just is the audience. Some of that just is depends on, on, you know, whatever other things come into to the creative world. But uh, that's kind of where I start is 2000 gives you a, gives you a nice budget to be able to do all those things. That does not include, by the way, the costs for having someone make a video for you or for someone to generate, um, uh, a logo or reskin your website. I guess we could probably take that out of the, the website part out of the budget, but, um, visuals and that's just digital marketing paying ads 2000. So just, yeah. you know, uh, it just depends on what you can get. Some people, Oh, I've got, I've got a lot a friend who will do that and they'll charge me a little bit. Okay, great. You got the photos for relatively cheap. That's awesome. Uh, maybe we, you need to put some more money into videos. I, for the most part, I will advise people on like what I think makes sense. But for the most part, I let people handle their budgets for, Hey, if we're going to do videos, that's kind of your budget and whoever you want to work with. I'm happy to help connect you with people. Let's understand what your budget for that is. But for digital, it's 2000. So. Gotcha. Very, very, very cool. Yeah. As we're kind of heading, heading, heading into the lightning round, yeah. which 
Hope you're ready for that. Got some good questions for you. I'll try to um, be fat. A few more questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are some books or resources you recommend to start getting more knowledge of the music business? I know you talked about Donald yeah. Passman already. Yeah, are there the any Pass- others? The Passman book is the one I recommend. Um, it's funny you ask that now because there's one that I just bought but haven't cracked yet called Fanocracy. Um, you know, fan democracy of fandom, democratization of fandom. I'm curious about it, but I haven't started it. So I I shouldn't probably recommend that yet. Um, There's a book. uh, Let me get the name of this right off of my. Yeah. And it could be, it could be any resource in general. Could be, could be a podcast or a course. Sure. There's a, there's a book I'm going to recommend that I like to call come together, the business wisdom of the Beatles. Um, I'm a huge Beatles fan. My dad, I think got me that as a present one year. Cause I was in the music business and a Beatles guy. It's got some just interesting things. Things were very different back then, but some interesting insights. What I recommend from a, uh, from an online perspective, uh, I use Hypebot and music business worldwide as my, basically my music business RSS feeds. Um, so I use Feedly, uh, to manage subscriptions to, to, um, to blogs. And those are both, both hypebot.com and music business worldwide, which is out of the UK are basically aggregators of, they do have their own, you know, unique content, but they're basically aggregators of the daily stories you need. And even if you don't have a chance to catch up during the week at the end of the week, I think hypebot at least has some, here's the rewind of the big stories you missed for the week. And, um, so you can do that. Um, those are those are probably the two I would I would recommend. Um, Seth Godin is great from an entrepreneurship standpoint, um, and uh, just as a thinker, I think he's yeah. great. And yeah. I love Malcolm Gladwell just as a thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, Blink would probably be a book of his I would recommend. Um, that that is a good one, but all of, all of Gladwell's stuff yeah. is, is good for our business. Completely agreed. Yeah. Um, so if artists want to connect and potentially work with you, how can they get involved? How can they contact you? Yeah, sure. Uh, probably the best place to get info is counterpartmusic.com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at counterpartmusic. You can DM me there if you want. And then I think Facebook is counterpartmsc. Um, but you can just search for counterpart music. It's got this sort of looks like a treble clef, but it's a C and a P sort of logo thing my clever designer came up with. And, uh, yeah, so my email address is there, probably, probably a good place. And then on Instagram, uh, there's a link tree in my bio that has a bunch of resources. Love it. All right. You ready for the lightning round? I am. I am. All right, here we go. Number one, what is the best gift you've ever received? Best gift ever, I guess I'm going to say is, has to be the old school Nintendo just because I played that so much when I was a kid. Yeah, I'm a, yeah. I just played that so much as an 80s and 90s kid. I love it. Uh, Number two, what item is always in your fridge? Sadly, always in my fridge is probably only water. (laughs) (laughs) I I mix it up so much that I, like with food, I mix my food up so much that uh, water's probably the only thing. That's the consistent. Hey, that's that's, that's a healthy. The Brita, you know. Yeah. Uh, number three, what was your first concert? 
I always say that it was Gloria Stefan and Miami Sound Machine, which I believe is true. It's possible I went to one like as a little kid and didn't remember it. But that was actually right before she uh, was in a pretty serious bus accident. Like two weeks later, she had one that sort of changed her life. And um, yeah. But yeah, Gloria Stefan and Miami Sound Machine, Conga and all that stuff. That's a good, that's a good start. Uh, number four, what's your favorite movie? Pulp Fiction. All right. I watch that all the time. Yeah, it's classic. Yep. Number five, and the final question, what was your first album you bought and why did you buy it? Ah, uh, yeah. So first, first album I guess I bought for myself with my own money was Duran Duran's Decade on CD. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was like my parents would get me. We had vinyl, Thriller, George Michael Faith. Like there were so many albums that my parents had. The reason I bought that one was actually because I was on an eighth grade trip, uh, science trip, and we stopped from Key Lar- in Key Largo. We stopped on the way back to the Miami airport at some place. And for some reason, we went to a place that had a music CD store um, or mu- music section. And I remember I was all pumped because I was like, oh, I'm going to buy this. But they had also mislabeled it. So for whatever reason, there was like another copy of that CD that was two bucks more or something. And I and they had mislabeled. I was like, oh, I can even save a couple bucks. So and I loved the I love uh, Duran Duran. I love that music. I was that was huge when I was a kid. And I guess I bought that when I was 13 or 14 for myself. Mm. Well, you did great. You aced Thanks. the lightning round. Thanks. We're going to be doing a, uh, a deep dive on what basically what it was like leaving Centricity to start your own business. We talked a little mm-hmm. bit about that. There, I know there are a lot of people out there with entrepreneurial ideas and aspirations. So if you're interested in hearing, watching the deep dive, go to madeitinmusic.com and you can find all of the deep dives there. Ben, thank you so much for being on the Made It Music podcast today. I know I've certainly learned a lot. I know the listeners will have learned a lot as well. Well, thanks, Seth. It was a pleasure to be on and always great to have you.